The letter of the, to the Philippians is in the New Testament. You do know that about a third of the New Testament is just letters written to early church congregations, uh, most of them by a guy named Paul. And the letter to the Philippians is a, is a short four-chapter letter, and it features a vision of God who is one of us. So it's like a great advent. Advent just means coming or appearing. It's a great advent letter like what does God look like when he's a stranger on the bus just trying to make his way home as the old song said and the primary revelation of God in, in Philippians we're going to cover the hymn that is quoted at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 today uh, the primary revelation of God appearing in human form is God's willingness to make the world a better place to bring God's realm by sharing power by sharing power. Is this super timely for us? Um, we're in this awful cultural moment when the brazen assertion of power for personal advantage is, is like on us every day. We, you know, politicians following the money as it concentrates at the top, unabated, even more, this is happening. And then you add to this, this really significant moment in our history where we have like almost daily revelations of men in power in the workplace using their power to harass and abuse women. Something that's been known to have happened but it's been hidden for all this time and now it's just it's coming up in a way that is is um, distressing. I was reading a scientific American article that did a survey of some of the research on this, a recent article on the effectiveness of um, sexual harassment training in the workplace. Perhaps many of you have been through that kind of training in your workplace. This is what the, the article said. Training about sexual harassment is geared to increase employees' attitudes toward the seriousness of harassment and increase belief that the organization also takes it seriously, that latter being especially important. Unfortunately, research does not support these effects. Neither students nor working adults showed any change after training in their personal attitudes about harassment or their perceptions of organizational tolerance for it. One study showed that a brief training intervention produced a backlash such that men were more likely to blame a victim of sexual harassment than were those who did not receive the training. Um, ultimately, the gold standard for sexual harassment training is to reduce sexual harassment. To date, only one research study has looked at this outcome and it found that the training was ineffective. Same article says that four out of ten women have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace sometime in the last two years. So, and you know, any woman will tell you that the, the workplace won't be safe for women until women have equal power in the workplace. I mean, that's the issue. The issue is power. It's not just, you know, training and information and all that. And so this is revealing something about like how we think about power in our in our culture we talk a lot about gaining power we talk a lot about exercising power about wielding power and all of that's important like growing up is the process of gaining exercising and wielding power like control over yourself over your surroundings but there's one other thing that we are supposed to do with power and that is share power um, God's realm in particular advances through power sharing. 
learning to share our power. Um, the key Philippians word throughout the, the letter um, is uh, the word sharing. It, it's, um, it's a very rich word in the Greek. It's koinonia. You may have heard it. It also means partnership participation, communion, a word for church, a word for gathering, koinonia. Um, koinonia is like what God experiences within the divine community of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or source, wellspring, living water. Um, koinonia, sharing, is what God invites us into. It's what God wants to create on earth. Martin Luther King called it the beloved community and sharing is the hallmark of it. Taking comes easy, sharing requires a little advanced training. So I want to read the text that um, puts the, out this vision of God in, in chapter 2 which is so important and is so fitting for Advent. Um, if then there is any encouragement in Christ any consolation from love, and this is what Oceana was reading, so this is rehearsing that. Any sharing in the spirit, there's that koinonia word, common sharing is another translation because it's a rich word. Any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. But it's a sharing mind, it's not like your perspective on everything. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than your, yourselves. Better meaning like to serve them. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And in my, um, my text, it shifts to uh, verses here. So it's, it's in verse form because uh, the scholars think that this what I'm about to read was actually one of the earliest Christian hymns. It would have been a hymn that was sung in the context of these um, Sunday or the uh, weekly celebration services that featured a meal that we now call communion, a word that in Greek is koinonia. And in fact, there's a little article about this being a, a hymn in my Bible. So let's, let's read the hymn. And the translation isn't really hymn-like, but it's, it's in English and it's scholars and blah, blah. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, I'm going to use this translation, I like it better, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, my, this other translation says, used for his own advantage, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth under the earth. Now it's starting to sound like a, a hymn even more in English. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So um, a, little, a little bit of background. This question of, of the divinity of Jesus actually is presented with a lot of nuance and uh, subtlety and I would say indirection in the New Testament. You know, occasionally you see like these billboards, Jesus is God. And it's like, 
it's like it's jarring because it's like Jesus didn't go around saying I am God you know it, it, it was it was different than that I mean it's the the New Testament is different than say the Nicene Creed which kind of spells this all out philosophically um, and there was a tradition actually in in Israel a, a Jewish scholar named Daniel Boyerin uh, talks about ancient Israel had a tradition of a second divine figure appearing alongside God so this wasn't like so crazy unexpected in uh, at least a strand of ancient Israel's thought and so Jesus doesn't go around saying I am God he was as you read the Gospels he was aware of uh, like a special divine connection that he had um, you know in 2017 we're faced with a leader who brazenly boasts of his power his intelligence you know his strength his wealth exaggerating the wealth exaggerating the number of uh, you know uh, stories in his towers his sexual prowess um, who uses his office for personal advantage and assumes that we would all do the same if we had the opportunity this is like a manifestation of something in the American like spirit the American zeitgeist that's it's gross but we have to acknowledge it's something our society produced and reward it right um, we all simmer in this sauce and like we're simmering in the same sauce in, in I, I was speaking um, you know I I had time in the Christian charismatic world and I, I value so much that I learned in the charismatic wing of the church but I, I I saw this close up I felt its tug a person can leverage their God encounters, their holy, special, sacred God encounters, encounters to enhance their personal prestige and power, you know? And the, the, the charismatic world is crowded with leaders who are telling stories that in which they're the hero and, and it works. It actually enhances their prestige. People don't like see through it. Jesus had this amazing divine encounter in his um, baptism, um, the voice, you are my son, the, the, the cloud, the dove, in whom I am well pleased. It was intimate, it was like bespoke that connection. And he must have told the story to someone because in one of the gospels it's told from his perspective. But he's immediately driven by the same spirit who, who mediated that experience into the Judean wilderness to be tempted by Satan as a, as a test for him personally. This was like part of his preparation. And what was the temptation he faced in the desert? It was to see whether he would use his divine connection for personal advantage. If you're the son of God, you know, turn this, and you're hungry, you turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, hurl yourself off the temple mount and survive and wow the crowds and gain a following. So there's two basic kinds of power um, here to be distinguished. One is earned power. Um, you write a lot, you sing a lot, you juggle a lot, you know, you cook a lot, you gain mastery over the thing. That's like earned power, good for you. There's earned power, but there's also born into or lucky power. You know, you're born into some, some status. Um, the form of power that Jesus shared in Philippians 2 here, interestingly, is the latter. 
It's the born into power of his, his pre-existent status in connection to God. He did not count equality with God something to be exploited, something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself. He was, he was sharing it and sharing like takes, like every toddler has to learn, sharing takes giving something away. Um, you know, we're not always, um, it's not very easy to distinguish earned power from born into power. So the Brookings Institution did this like meta study of all these uh, stu economic studies and estimated that 35 to 40 percent of wealth is inherited. Like 35 to 40 percent of the wealth um, that we have is inherited. But the thing about money is it's not marked inherited. You know, there's not like 35% of your money that is just marked inherited. Your bank statements don't go boom. This portion was inherited. And we all like to think, especially in Amer American society, and this is very different than ancient like biblical times, we like to think that we have earned every advantage that we have, right? I mean, that's just a natural... Um, human thing we like our credit you know like I'm I know this this has got to be a part of my sexist upbringing but it's really important for me to get credit for things I do around the house um, so like I, I notice myself I like I tend to wash the kitchen floor I will scheme not you know I do this in a part of my brain that's not really I'm not really paying a lot of attention to so it can do its dirty work you know I do it in that part of my brain and I, I always figure out a way to wash the floor just before Julia comes home so she sees me you know and sometimes I'll linger a little bit too you know it's like, it's like the other day I washed the floor I did a, I did a bad job I washed the floor and she, and she was, wasn't home for hours and I found myself saying hey did you notice I washed the floor you know like I I just, I just love credit in, in certain realms in particular but I don't want to ask for credit because I want credit for being modest so it's like a, this is like a thing I'm working through all the time. So um, I want, uh, with permission, I wanted to use an example of, of uh, John Edder, who's, who's started a pretty successful cab company from scratch. Um, after grad school, um, to pay off his uh, grad student loans, he, uh, John drove a cab. Um, and he worked like a Dick the Dickens for years doing this. But lots of people drive cabs and work like the Dickens and don't build that into a cab company. John had a born advantage. He had access to startup capital. And his dad loaned him $10,000 to buy his first cab outright so that his profit margin then just skyrocketed. And he had enough money to buy a second cab and have a hire a cabbie to, to drive that cab. And he got a portion of that. And that's how he built uh, a a um, a successful um, cab company, and he yes, John started a successful cab company from scratch, but he had help getting the scratch. You know, <laughs> you need help getting the scratch. The biggest factor in whether a person slips into poverty or not turns out to be whether you have ready access to an emergency loan of up to two thousand dollars. 
If you don't have ready access, like a family or friend that you can easily ask, and they'll have the money and loan it to you, you are in much greater danger of slipping into poverty. You're like one big uh, little mini disaster away. Your car breaks down. And you're a single mom and you work on the, on the midnight shift when the buns, buses aren't running. Your car breaks down you, and you've got two kids depending on you. You lose your job if you don't have access to $2,000 to get that car fixed. Now, the stories we tell ourselves tend to emphasize earned power over born into or lucky power, right? I mean, the story I tell about myself is I grew up in a two-bedroom brick bungalow house in Detroit. Not the suburbs, in Detroit. Of course, it was in the time when it was like the heyday of Detroit, but that's all right. I got married at 18. I worked my way through college with no help from my parents. My parents were struggling financially. I got not a dime from my parents. I worked my way through college. Of course, there was a lot of, a lot of student loans at that time, and it was a lot cheaper. But I have a, I have a in my mind, I've got a made-it-from-scratch story. But I got help with the scratch, you know. I went to the University of Michigan, which opened up some doors. How did I get in with my 2.9 grade point average? How would you feel about your chances of getting into U of M if you had a 2.9 grade point average? You would feel better if your dad was an alum at, from U of M like mine was. I got two legacy points on that little ranking thing and those two legacy points got me, that, that, was, the, that was the skin on my teeth that got me in. It was those two points from my dad that I did nothing to earn. How did I get into the housing market in Ann Arbor? I got into the housing market in like 1982, I think it was, and just rode the way from one house to the other. My original 50,000 investment just grew, grew, grew. How did I get the money to get into the Ann Arbor housing market? I had a friend who loaned me $10,000 for a down payment and forgave half of it. Yes, I have a great made-from-scratch story, but I got some big-time help getting the scratch. My wife, Julia, um, is an Episcopal priest, and in my mind, I, I, I think, man, the Episcopal Church, it just, there's all sorts of perks for the, for the clergy. Do you know the retirement system, the pension system? Number one, they have one for Episcopal <laughs> clergy. Number two, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt started um, uh, the Social Security thing, he, he called J.P. Morgan and said, I want you to start a, 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 a Social Security system for the United States that rivals the Episcopal one that J.P. Morgan has started for the Episcopal church. And I see that and I'm like, whoa, I, um, I started a church from scratch. Um, in, in, you know, wild and woolly, you know, renewalist Christianity where there's no pension benefits, right? But I was a man. It's something I was, hello, born with. And, and in my church world, women were not allowed to start their own churches. So I like to focus on my disadvantage, not my advantage in my story, right? Just naturally. But Jesus acknowledged his advantage, his divine connection, and that is what allowed him to look at it differently and then to share it, to give it away when the opportunity arose and not grasp it for his own advantage. But, you know, if we start off denying 
uh, our unearned advantages or chronically minimizing their place in our story, then we don't think to choose those advantages with others. And, and, and right there, right there, that, that um, denial that is in me and it's in, it's in all of us, that will actually stymie one of the primary ways that God's realm comes into the world is through giving away that unearned power. Of course, um, you notice I haven't used a certain word <laughs> as I've been talking. Sociologists call it uh, unearned advantage, privilege. And that is a word that rankles most of us with privilege because it feels like it diminishes our hard work you know what I'm saying like I don't know if you have that same feeling about the words like oh gosh that's you know that's, 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 that's training I get from this system or that system privilege privilege I just I want to barf here and all this privilege stuff oh that's a little resistance in us that just comes from that natural thing of we like to emphasize our disadvantage not our advantage in our stories we just look better so we should just acknowledge we do get credit for our own work but we don't get credit for work we don't do I mean that's just like basic fairness um, and if we overestimate the credit due it's time for us to recalibrate so I want to end by proposing some like moves for us to consider um, kind of spiritually internally making some of these Adjustments and the first few moves will be self-reflection and then God reflection. So first, and this, by the way, is kind of the meditation for communion. We're not doing a meditation. The communion is going to be the meditation. So the first move would be to just review the story we tell ourselves and give proper place to the role of unearned advantage, and then actually practice telling that story. To other people to yourself and to other people like you know in the ancient world the people people like bragged about the fact that they came from a wealthy family or got an inheritance that was the only way you got wealth in the ancient world was through inheritance anyway and so you know that there, there was like there was it was like okay and so people told that story well Let's acknowledge those hidden things in our own story, wherever they are. And by the way, don't we always have the tendency we compare ourselves to those with more advantage? And then we feel like, oh good, we've got less advantage than somebody, you know? <laughs> but, you know, to, to recalibrate this, you need to do it the other way, where you compare yourself with someone with less advantage. And then that gives you eyes to see your own advantage, so you can include that in your story and then just practice like telling telling that story um, and then pay attention to the emotions surrounding that process because the emotions that go around that process of recognizing this is so important like skip the guilt like you might skip the salt and you have high blood pressure you know like guilt for things that you don't control is is just useless and it's dumb you know like you were born this that or the other you have this this circumstantial it's like you're not guilty for that having happened to you you know like we're human beings 
and we're not like on the assembly line of, of chickens, you know, that have a miserable life or pigs or cows and, you know, but do we feel guilty about being born human and like having a better deal than agricultural, you know, factory animals? Uh, n no. <laughs> I mean, it's just like nobody asked me if I wanted to be a human rather than a pig. I just, I just appeared out here. So guilt is like an irrational response to this whole thing. And, and guilt, I think, is what drives that other resistance kind of response. So forget about guilt. Try feeling grateful. You know, like grateful that, well, gosh, I, 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 had, I had this advantage. I didn't have to suffer this, this consequence. Or like it's okay to feel gratitude about that. Um, John actually feels a lot of gratitude about that and I notice he's like he does a lot of things to help people in his business he loans people money all the time and people are working for him he does all sorts of things behind the scenes because he has an awareness of his advantage and, and it just liberates him to want to be um, more generous um, but at the same time so forget guilt say yes to gratitude but Look at the system that allowed that advantage. And if it's out of whack, like my being able to start a church in 1975 when a woman couldn't start a church, that's out of whack. I don't like a world like that, you know? That, that, that sucks. That's a stacked deck. It's, it's, it's wrong. And the response to a recognized injustice is anger. It's like, Go ahead and, and feel anger. Anyone on the short side of the stacked deck, if you've ever been on the short side of any stacked deck whatsoever, your response is anger. And so, yeah, anger. Let yourself feel some anger. And out of love for those who are really on the short end of the stick, feel some of that anger that they have to live with every day. You know, feeling what other people feel is a, is a way to love them. Um, uh, Sharonda, oh, that's two weeks. I've named Sharonda. That's, that's it for, for at least seven months, Sharonda. But uh, it was a Facebook post uh, she had recently, and it was, tell me what, um, what is your, like, what's, I think, tell me what song means the most to you, and I will listen to it, and I will know you better by listening to it. And I, I, I thought about that, and I get, and then I, there was a very meaningful song, and I shared it with Sharonda, and I just, I felt so loved by Sharonda through Facebook, through a Facebook post. And because it was, she was making a move toward people to feel what they feel, because that's what music is all about. It's about, it's about feeling. So, um, having done some self-reflection let's do some God reflection and take your eyes off your own story and how, you know how you fit in the you know the the advantage Olympics and all that stuff take your eyes off your own story and put them on God's story and Philippians 2 is like one expression of God's story God you know showing up like a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home that's Philippians 2 that's that version of God's story and that's what we do every Sunday uh, with communion. And, you know, the, uh, I like the way Emily leads the communion. She lifts up the bread, you know, so we can look at it. And lifts up the cup and pours it out so you can see the liquid go from one thing into, a, into another. 
and it's, it's like visual you see it and then we walk up and then we touch we touch it it gets you know we feel the bread in our hands and then we taste it we put it in our mouths and like we're taking in at a sensory level the the heart of this story I mean the the, the communion meal is just enacting Philippians 2 every Sunday it must be important that that was the the hymn that gets captured in Philippians because that's what people sang you know sing it till you feel it so you can do it is is what singing is all about and then pray God just give me eyes to see when there's an opportunity to share my advantage you know I mean Jesus Jesus had it for a long time and then there was this opening there was this opportunity there was this moment in human history and he went through he did it you know it was like he's he's got the ball and the the, the offensive line has made the hole and he went through the hole you were going to have those moments in our lives where if we've got this kind of uh, unearned advantage we're going to have an opportunity to share one of the best things I feel about um starting this church you know I started that other church in 75 and it was the same 501c3 through uh, a bunch of different iterations this church was a different 501c3 so it was like the second church I was involved in in starting and the thing I feel best about this church besides you all being here is um, I did it with a co-pastor Emily we had co-pastors in the beginning. And I think it was Emily's recommendation that our board be, um, in our bylaws, we put uh, gender equity in our bylaws. So when we, you're going to be voting on nominations, whatever, we, we, we make sure there's, there's a, a, you know, 50-50 equity in our, in our board. It's like, yeah, well, it, that's so easy. Yes, do that. Boom. Take the opportunity. Felt good. Um, not done uh, Emily you're going to do stuff now because I think I finished my part yeah, I'll do the only stuff I didn't now. have a very smooth stuff. transition sentence yeah, yeah. there <laughs> insert a very smooth powerful meaningful <laughs> transition se sentence that you get choked up on yeah. and say wow that was amazing <laughs> oh man <laughs>